Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Oracle Look deeper. Well, hi there, friends. I'm your host, Melanie Peterson, and welcome to episode 40. I can't believe that we're almost to 50 episodes, if I'm being honest. And I really want to thank everyone who has supported Mask of Sanity, either through sharing my episodes with others, leaving a review, any kind of financial support through the merch store, my coffee accounts, Patreon, any feedback that I've been given on my episodes. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm just doing my darndest to put out the best content I can. So thank you for sticking by me. And I hope you're still enjoying my show as much as when I started or more, hopefully more. For today's episode, we're going to go through the case of Audrey Marie Hilly. It's kind of a bizarre one, not so much for the murders that she committed, but for what ultimately happened to Audrey after she was named as the prime suspect in the murder of her husband, and attempted murder of her daughter. She would end up leading police on a three-year manhunt, jumping from city to city, using a variety of aliases, attempting in any way she could think of to avoid being captured and held accountable for poisoning her husband and daughter with arsenic so that she could cash in on the insurance policies she had taken out on them. Buckle up, my friends. This one is going to be a bumpy ride. This is Mask of Sanity. Audrey Marie Hilly was born to Huey and Lucille Frazier on June 4, 1933, in Anniston, Alabama. Her parents often worked all day, and for a lot of her childhood, Audrey was primarily raised by two of her aunts. She was not so much referred to as Audrey, instead they went by her middle name, and Marie is what she was known for throughout the rest of her life. Perhaps trying to make up for their lack of presence in Marie's life, Huey and Lucille gave in to every single one of their daughter's requests. They rarely, if ever, told her no, and if they tried to, she would throw a fit and scream and cry until her parents gave in. If there was even a single shred of discipline directed towards Marie, 
she would again throw this epic tantrum. Unable to find ways to stop her volatile behavior, Marie's parents soon sunk into what I can only refer to as basically defensive parenting. They made decisions based on what would be least likely to upset Marie. They even, quote, allowed her to sleep in their bed well past the age where children learn to sleep through the night in their own beds, end quote. The psychological implications of this most likely forged an unhealthy connection to her parents, almost a controlling kind of connection. By the time she was 17, Frank and Marie got married on May 8th, 1951. Frank was serving in the U.S. Navy at the time and had taken leave in order to come back and get married. While he was away, he would send Marie each of his paychecks for her to put away and save so that when he finally got out of the Navy, they had a little bit of a nest egg to build a life together. But of course, that's not what happened. Marie spent every single one of his paychecks and never told him about it. For a short time, they lived in California together. Marie had moved out there to be closer to Frank, and she recalled that she had never been happier during that time. When Frank was discharged from the Navy, he and Marie moved back to Aniston and immediately began searching for a job. Since Marie had spent their money, they had no savings to help them get started. So Frank found a job working as a shipping clerk and Marie began a secretarial position. The couple welcomed their first child, Michael, on November 11th, 1952, and for a time, there was nothing unusually alarming about the marriage. Both Marie and Frank worked, they raised their son together, everything seemed just fine. However, when Marie was 21, a woman named Nanny Doss had been arrested and was put on trial for the poisoning deaths of her two children, two sisters, four husbands, her mother, grandson, and her nephew. Marie watched the trial with intense interest. In 1960, Marie would give birth to their second child, a daughter, Carol Marie Hilly, on January 14th. In the months leading up to Carol's birth, Marie, quote, began to privately taunt Frank with letters she claimed were love letters from other men. She showed him the letters, but refused to let him read them. Then she tore them up in front of him, but left the remains where he could find them. Frank found that she had written them all herself. When confronted, she confessed that she had done it because she was afraid he didn't love her anymore, end quote. She would also treat herself to fancy clothes, other high-priced items. She spent more money than she ever brought in from her secretary job and wanted to be seen as wealthy and stylish in the community. Anytime a bill came for one of the items she purchased, she would hide it from Frank since she knew he would disapprove of her spending. After Carol was born, Marie was disappointed, to say the least, with her new baby. She didn't think Carol was a cute baby and that the baby accurately reflected on her. From a young age, Carol apparently also didn't like wearing dresses, which deeply frustrated Marie. In 1962, Marie made Frank move the family into a bigger, newer, more expensive house closer to the section of town where the wealthier families lived. A couple of years later, Marie's parents, Huey and Lucille, moved into their home as they were getting older and Marie's father was not doing well. He was actually sick with cancer and died from that cancer on December 11th, 1965 at just 57 years old. As the years passed, Marie was suspected of having at least one affair. She left her home and stayed with her sister-in-law for a short time, during which her sister-in-law saw her leaving with a man who was not Frank. 
After her son Michael graduated from high school, Marie took out a $25,000 life insurance policy on him and made herself the sole beneficiary. With one of her children away at college, Marie convinced Frank to foster a young girl named Maria Alexander, but you know as well as I do that Marie Hilly wasn't fostering this girl to be a good person or to give this little girl a loving home. No, 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 no. She was doing it because the county paid foster parents a monthly stipend. She looked at this little girl as nothing but another source of income. It was also around this time that Frank began to notice things going missing around the house, and Marie would never completely explain what happened to them. Random small appliances, meat from the refrigerator, things would just disappear, but there was never any explanation, and Marie never confessed where they had gone. She was trying to control every aspect of the home. She wouldn't let Frank speak to his friends on the phone. She suspected her daughter Carol was a lesbian and would scream and berate her daughter and her female friends. Marie Hilly would find herself angry at anyone or anything that didn't measure up to the lifestyle that she wanted the world to associate with her. It's also suspected that part of her need for controlling her family members incited her decision to slowly begin poisoning Frank with arsenic. Frank would get mild symptoms some days, like nausea, while other days he would have severe stomach cramps and hardly be able to move or make it to the bathroom. He couldn't figure out what exactly was going on, but soon began to think that perhaps his wife had something to do with it. In 1975, Frank called Michael, who is now living in Florida with his wife Terry, and told his son that he needed to speak to him about something important, but that he needed to tell him in person. He couldn't do it over the phone. What Frank didn't realize was that Marie was listening to his conversation on an extension line in the house. Despite making plans to meet with Michael in Georgia the following weekend, Frank wouldn't make it. In the days after his phone call to Michael, his symptoms got significantly worse. Not knowing what else to do, Frank went to his doctor who diagnosed him with a stomach virus, which is often what arsenic poisoning presents as and can be mistaken for. Frank was prescribed medication in a capsule, but Marie told Frank's sister Frida that the medication from the doctor was an injection and that Frida could administer it to her brother. What Frida didn't know was that the injection she administered on May 22, 1975 would end up being a fatal dose of arsenic to her brother Frank. After the injection was given, Frank's health rapidly declined and he was rushed to the hospital the following morning only to pass away just two days later on May 25th. Shortly after Frank's death, Marie filed a claim, quote, for $31,140 in life insurance, of which she was the sole beneficiary, end quote. Instead of spending the money responsibly, why would she? She treated herself to a shopping spree. She bought a new car. She bought a motorcycle. She bought a ton of new furniture for the house. I don't even honestly know if she rode a motorcycle. I couldn't find any evidence or sources to explain that. Perhaps she just liked the way they looked. I have no idea. But apparently that was worth spending her deceased husband's money on. Michael and Terry moved in with Marie after the death of his father in order to help care for Marie's mother, Lucille, who had also become unwell. 
Terry was pregnant at the time, so when she was in Marie's home and experienced nausea and stomach cramps, it was attributed to morning sickness and the pregnancy. However, it was later suspected that Marie also poisoned Terry, which unfortunately resulted in a miscarriage. Marie couldn't stand the attention not being on her between her mother being ill, Terry first being pregnant and then losing the baby. So when threatening letters began arriving at the house, she feigned fear, but secretly enjoyed the spotlight being back on her. She also didn't hesitate to report, quote, numerous cases of vandalism to her insurance company and collect the payments, end quote. Michael and Terry, still grieving the loss of the pregnancy, moved out of the house, and without their help and income, Marie found herself wondering what to do now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On September 5th, 1976, a fire broke out in the home while no one was there. So Marie, quote, sued the Alabama Gas Company for $75,000. She lost the lawsuit, but collected insurance, end quote. Now with more insurance money lining her pockets, Marie began to increase the amount of arsenic she was secretly giving her mother. She no longer wanted to be responsible as her caretaker and began giving Lucille injections that she told her mother would help lessen her pain from her cancer. A couple of months later, on January 4th, 1977, 43-year-old Marie Hilly watched as her mother took her last breath as she passed away from cancer and wasted no time in collecting $600 from her mother's burial policy. After Lucille's death, Marie continued to file insurance claims for vandalism. Screens on the windows were cut, windows were apparently broken. She also reported harassing phone calls to the police where she claimed all she could hear on the other end was heavy breathing. Marie said that some of her jewelry had gone missing and that it was probably the work of her neighbor's 18-year-old son. She accused him of stealing, quote, nine pieces of valuable jewelry, two gold candlestick holders, a revolver, a tear gas gun, and a hairdryer. She just happened to have pictures of every piece of jewelry stolen which she used when filing the insurance claim, end quote. Well, isn't that just handy? She had pictures of every single item that she reported missing. That's just too convenient for words. How did nobody catch on to this? With the amount of insurance claims that this woman has filed, it kind of blows my mind. The phone calls to the police went on daily for nearly two years. She always had a new complaint against a neighbor or her daughter's friends, people she used to work with, and the phone calls, the complaints, they covered a whole gamut of things. There was harassment, vandalism, burglary, even extortion. There were a couple of officers who would routinely handle her calls or come to take a report at her home, and it was later revealed that Marie would bake cookies and cakes for these detectives 
but she laced them with different amounts of arsenic. On June 17, 1977, Marie Hilly once again called the Aniston Police Department, and this time she had Detective Gary Carroll on the other end of the line. She told Detective Carroll that she could smell gas in her home and that she needed someone to come and check it out. An inspection by the gas company noted that there was a, quote, valve underneath her house, which would release gas if depressed, end quote. So clearly this was just another ploy, another cry for attention from Marie Hilly. She would continue to call the station and began asking only for Detective Carroll, who described her as being very polite, very soft-spoken on the phone. He offered to put another trace on any incoming phone calls to the house to see if they could track the source of the harassing phone calls. What was suspicious is that the harassing calls would stop whenever police were actively tracing the phone line. But as soon as the trace was removed, she would complain that the calls were happening again and that the most plausible explanation for this was that someone at the phone company must be involved. At one point, one of the earlier traces revealed that the call had come from the phone booth directly across the street from Marie's house. Just a few days later, Marie called Detective Carroll again to report that, quote, one of her former employers attempted to force her to have oral sex with him and put forth the idea that he was responsible for the harassment. She told Detective Donnie Williams that two men had come by her house shortly after Frank's death, demanding $30,000 or $40,000 in payment for gambling debts. Marie told Detective Carroll that the harassment was to get them to move because Kmart was building a store on their street. No phone calls occurred while Carol was at home, end quote. At this point, again, how can no one see through her BS? Not only is she wasting resources by tying up the police with her ridiculous claims, but she was also accusing random people of harassment and theft. It was also determined that harassing phone calls made to Doris Ford, who was a friend of Marie's, came from a phone line at the Jenkins Manufacturing Plant where Marie worked. On July 22, 1977, another fire was reported at Marie's home, and after it was extinguished, the firemen determined that the fire originated in a closet near Carol's bedroom. Marie and Carol temporarily stayed with Doris, and another fire was started in a closet in Doris's home, causing Marie to blame Doris's boyfriend for the fires in both Marie's home and in Doris's home, which again makes absolutely no sense. How could he have set the fire in Marie's home without breaking in? There was no evidence that the home had been broken into. Marie decided to sell her house and took a loss on it so that she could be paid in cash. She and her daughter Carol moved into an apartment and with this, she also got a new unlisted phone number. But the claims of harassing phone calls continued. On August 3rd, 1977, she called Detective Carol to report the calls, stating she had no idea why they were still occurring since she had moved and changed her phone number, having given it only to Doris Ford, Frank's sister Frida Adcock, and a friend of Carol's. Three of the harassing phone calls were traced to one of 
Marie's daughter's friends, who Marie had gotten into an argument with in the past. Marie had accused the young girl of attempting to engage in a romantic relationship with her daughter. It got to a point where Detective Carroll and other officers familiar with Marie Hilly began to, quote, feel uncomfortable about Marie's constant calls and suspected that she might be fabricating things. They concluded amongst themselves that the Hillies didn't seem to be in real danger anymore, end quote, and they stopped taking her calls. On November 11th, 1977, Carol's car was reported stolen, last seen in the parking lot at the nearby Oxford Mall, but it was found just two hours later deserted and on fire. Of course, Marie filed an insurance claim and collected a nice payout. Not long after this incident, Marie decided to relocate once again to a new house on Orchard Street. When asked why she was moving again so soon, she claimed that it was because they needed a fenced-in yard for Carol's dog. But it's also suspected that she moved in order to avoid creditors tracking her down. At this point, she was in so much debt from her reckless spending that she was just hopping and skipping and jumping all over town. The move would be short, however, this time. In June, Marie and Carol decided to move to Pompano Beach, Florida, and live with her son Michael and Terry and their new baby Joshua. Remember the last time Marie was around Michael and Terry, Terry was pregnant but miscarried, most likely from Marie poisoning her. And now with a new baby, Michael and Terry were extremely cautious and concerned about Marie being around the child. She also seemed to have an obsessive infatuation with her grandson. At one point, Michael grew extremely worried that his mother may try to kidnap Joshua and disappear. After three months, Carol and Marie moved back to Anniston, Alabama. And Marie at this point was going on and on and on about how she was having money troubles. Michael and Terry, however, breathed a huge sigh of relief that Marie was no longer living with them. She was no longer making them concerned about their son's safety. And having nowhere to live, Marie and Carol moved in with Frank's mother, Carrie, offering to help Carrie with paying the bills. The problem with this was that when Carrie would give Marie her share of the money owed for whatever bill it was, Marie would instead keep the money and not pay the bills. So eventually overdue statements began to arrive at the house. Marie would intercept the mail and hide them to keep Carrie from finding out. Marie's behavior grew increasingly alarming. She insisted on sleeping in the living room on the couch. She would set a 38 revolver on the mantel and sleep with a crowbar and rope underneath the couch. Carrie was extremely uncomfortable with this and would often hide the gun when Marie was not home, but Marie always ended up finding it and then putting it back on the mantel. With each passing night, the gun, the crowbar, Marie would disappear for hours at a time, especially at night, but would often return with large sums of money, anywhere from about 800 to 1200 a night. The occasional bouts of nausea and stomach cramps from what is now suspected poisoning. Carrie became so frightened of her daughter-in-law that she claimed she could no longer sleep at night. On July 27, 1978, Marie took out a 
$25,000 life insurance policy on her daughter, Carol. And like with her son's policy, she named herself as the sole beneficiary. Marie continued to act strangely, making everyone in her life nervous, not sure of what, if anything, would set her off. The following year was Carol's senior year of high school, and by April, she was doing what a lot of girls do. She was making plans for her senior prom and the next steps in her life. The night of her prom, Marie began poisoning her daughter, and for the next month, Carol would be plagued with nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, cramps, and was finally taken to the emergency room on May 6, 1979. She was admitted and stayed at the hospital for three days as doctors tried to figure out what was ailing the teenager, but they were unsuccessful. She was released from the hospital, but the following morning, Carol was violently ill again, so she went back. Doctors still couldn't determine the cause and attributed it to a psychosomatic illness. Marie would go visit Carol and bring her all of her favorite foods in an attempt to cheer her up, or at least that's what it looked like. But what doctors didn't catch on to was that everything Marie gave her daughter was poisoned. And since Carol could never keep anything down, her weight dropped significantly. At one point, she weighed 107 pounds, but over time, she dropped down to a mere 87 pounds. After Carol left the hospital for the second time, she would have periods where she seemed to be getting better, but then she would fall ill again. Marie promised to give her daughter $10,000 to go purchase a new car, but when Carol planned to actually head out to a car dealership, Marie gave her a dose of arsenic that made her so sick she had to go back to the hospital. By this point, Carol was defeated. She had no idea what was going on, why she couldn't get better, and she had had enough, so she decided to try to commit suicide by taking a lot of Tylenol, but the suicide attempt failed. Marie used this as a way to further reinforce to doctors that their diagnosis of a psychosomatic illness was correct. So not only was Marie poisoning her own child, which is unfathomable, she was convincing doctors that what was going on was psychological, that there was no physical illness or physical cause that was making her daughter sick. She was making her daughter ill and then also saying she was crazy. That's just real nice parenting there. On June 1st, 1979, Marie took out an insurance policy on the furniture in her mother-in-law Carrie's house for $3,000 and, not too surprisingly, a fire mysteriously broke out in the home less than a month later when Marie's sleeping bag caught fire on top of the washing machine. It was later discovered that Marie had taken the batteries out of the smoke alarms prior to setting the fire. Later that summer, Michael came to visit his mother questioning her spending and where she was getting the money. Marie claimed that Frank, quote, had left her stock in the company he used to work for, but for whatever reason, she couldn't collect on it. They made plans to go to the bank right after breakfast to get everything sorted out. Marie poisoned Michael's breakfast so that he would be too sick to go anywhere, end quote. Carol also decided to rent an apartment, much to the chagrin of her mother, but eventually... Marie relented and even purchased more than $2,000 worth of new furniture for her daughter. She then used this act of kindness as leverage to convince Carol to let her stay overnight. During one of these sleepovers, 
Carol caught her mother trying to disconnect her phone, again, supposedly to avoid calls from creditors. I can only imagine the amount of debt she had racked up at this point. She spent money on whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted, with no intention of paying it back. Even Michael was getting phone calls concerning Marie's debts. The store that she had bought Carol's furniture from called him and told him that his mother's check had bounced. She had also purchased a car in Michael's name and sold it without telling him or paying it off. So she was also destroying her son's credit in the process. And since Carol had been sick off and on for so long, she played on the sympathy of friends and neighbors, telling them what a struggle it had been to care for her daughter and asking to borrow money from them. By August 1979, Marie began injecting Carol with doses of arsenic. She claimed that it was medication to help with her nausea, but of course all it did was make Carol worse. In just a few days, she lost feeling in her toes and had trouble walking. For Carol, climbing stairs proved to be a big challenge, and as her symptoms got worse and worse, Carol was in and out of the hospital four times in just a couple of months. By late August, it was recommended to Marie by Dr. John Elmore that Carol be admitted to a psychiatric ward in order to treat her supposed psychological disorder. And Marie jumped at this. She couldn't have put her daughter there any faster than she did. By this point, Carol had lost the use of her legs and feet due to the nerve damage from the arsenic, so she was no longer able to stand or walk. While she was in the psychiatric ward, Marie told family as well as her friends and Carol's friends that Carol had a severe case of leukemia and that no one should try to visit her. Marie would often visit her daughter and under a promise of secrecy, for whatever reason Carol was going along with this, not to blame her at all, I think at this point she was just so desperate for any kind of relief and why wouldn't she believe her mother? It's her mother for crying out loud. But Marie began giving Carol injections again, which she claimed would help restore her ability to walk and use her legs. Carol told Marie that she would keep it a secret, but actually this time, Carol decided to tell one of her friends, Eve Cole, who, concerned at hearing about what Marie was doing, called the rest of Carol's family and told them what was going on. Relatives called the hospital and informed the doctors who then banned Marie from visiting her daughter because of it. On September 18, 1979, Dr. Elmore, now with the suspicion that Carol's symptoms may not be psychological, he told Marie that he believed Carol's symptoms were actually a result of heavy metal poisoning, which caused Marie to pull Carol out of the psychiatric ward almost as fast as she put her in there. When asked why, Marie told the staff that she didn't believe they were doing the best job they could for her daughter, and clearly Carol wasn't getting any better here, and that she could do a better job for her daughter at home. Marie told Carol that they would move back to Anniston, but Carol questioned how they would even get there since they didn't have a car. Marie claimed that she had purchased one and that the seller was going to pick them up, but before that happened, Marie too became ill with the same symptoms as Carol. So apparently she had poisoned herself as well, perhaps possibly in a suicide attempt because things were way out of control at this point and she didn't know what to do. Or she wanted to throw suspicion 
off of her by giving herself the same symptoms. The following day, Marie took Carol to the hospital and got Carol admitted, despite being in pretty bad shape herself. While she was there, the attending physician, Dr. Michael Thompson, called Dr. Elmore to discuss Carol's health. Dr. Elmore instructed Dr. Thompson to look for signs of poisoning. So when he returned to Carol's room, he, quote, found Aldridge Mee's lines under her fingernails, signs of arsenic accumulation. Her hair was found to contain 100 times more arsenic than found in normal human hair. While this was going on, Marie was arrested in the waiting room for passing worthless checks, totaling $6,502.98. The hospital never advised the police about the poisoning, end quote. Doctors tested Carol for arsenic poisoning, to which she came up positive. It was also decided at this point to exhume Frank's body, and he also tested positive for arsenic. Growing even more concerned, police tested the blood of Lucille Frazier and Carrie Hilly. Both were found to have significant traces of arsenic in their bloodstreams. With these findings, police indicted 46-year-old Marie Hilly on October 25, 1979 at the Calhoun County Jail for Frank's murder, the attempted murder of her daughter Carol, as well as passing two bad checks. Marie made bond on November 18th and was staying at a hotel in Birmingham, but she decided to make a run for it and left the state. For the next three years, Marie Hilly moved around the country, a fugitive from the law. The FBI was brought into the search and they located her vehicle in Marietta, Georgia, but by this point, Marie had assumed a new identity in Florida. She had taken the name Robbie Hannon and when she met John Greenleaf Holman III, she told him that she was a Florida native. After a few months of dating, John and Maria, aka Robbie, got married on May 29, 1981. She began working as a secretary at Keene Screw Company after she and her new husband relocated to Marlowe, New Hampshire. The following year, Robbie told John that she was going to visit her twin sister in Texas for a while. John had heard his wife talk about this sister often, and despite never having met or talked to Terry, he thought it was a great idea. When Marie returned three months later, she had dyed her hair blonde and she was significantly thinner. Marie told John that her name was Terry Martin, Robbie's twin sister, and that Robbie had died. But before she died, she made Terry promise to take care of her husband. Perhaps completely shaken by the news, I can't understand why he didn't question any of Terry's story, but he didn't, and together they placed an obituary in the Keen Sentinel for Robbie Homan, stating that there would be no service as her body had been donated to science. Terry told John that she had given Robbie's body to the non-existent Medical Research Institute in Texas. This whole time that Marie was on the run, various law enforcement agencies were tracking pretty much every lead they came across. When Robbie Homan's obituary was spotted by a New Hampshire state trooper and he decided to look into it, he found that he couldn't verify any of the information, so he decided to ask this woman, Terry Martin, about Robbie and try to get some answers 
on what actually happened to her. On January 12, 1983, a detective caught up to Terry Martin in Battleboro, Vermont, and began questioning her. It didn't take long for Terry to confess that she was Marie Hilly, and Robbie Homan for that matter. She also told the police that she was wanted in Alabama for writing bad checks, but only for writing bad checks. The detective made a call down to Alabama and was told that, yes, Marie Hilly was wanted for writing bad checks, but they also told him that she was wanted for murder. So Marie Hilly was extradited to Alabama and officially charged with murder and attempted murder. She pleaded innocent to all charges and was held on a $320,000 bond. Her trial was pretty open and shut. The evidence clearly showed that she had poisoned her husband and her daughter, so the jury convicted her on all counts and she was sentenced to life in prison for Frank's murder and she also received a 20-year term for Carol's attempted murder. She was sent to Tutwiler State Women's Prison in Wetumpka, Alabama, and now here's where things take a wild turn. Everyone knows, or should know, that Marie Hilly is a flight risk. She ran once, so logic would tell us that she has the potential and the desire to do it again. However, the prison decided to reward her model prisoner behavior with day passes. So she could be released from the prison for an eight hour period and then would return at the agreed upon time. So she got a few of these passes. She's building up trust here. In February, 1987, Marie was granted a three day furlough for the first time to go visit her husband, John Homan, who apparently was okay with the fact that his wife was never truly who she said she was. She lied to him. She pretended to be his dead wife's sister. She said that she had died, but whatever. She met up with John in Anniston, Alabama, and wouldn't you know it, she failed to show back up at prison at the end of that three-day furlough. On February 24th, John Homan called the police and informed them that Marie had left a note saying she was fleeing to Canada with a man named Walter and that she was sorry. He said that they had, quote, spent a day at an Aniston motel, and when Homan left for a few hours, she disappeared, leaving behind a note for Homan asking his forgiveness. Her escape prompted an inquiry into the prison system's furlough policy, end quote. A search was immediately launched to find Marie and bring her back, and just two days later, on February 26th, a woman named Sue Kraft looked out of the window onto her patio deck and saw a woman outside. The woman was wet and looked like she had been spending significant time outdoors, which was odd for this time of year. It had been raining, it was cold, so Sue called the police in Saks, Alabama to, quote, report a strange woman sprawled out on her porch. Police and an ambulance determined the woman to be Marie Hilly. She was transported to the Regional Medical Center in Anniston, Alabama, end quote. Neighbors were shocked that the woman found was Marie Hilly. They hadn't recognized her. Janice Hines, one of the women who attended to Marie while waiting for the ambulance, said, quote, That woman was pitiful. We didn't know she was Marie Hilly. She didn't look like Marie Hilly. 
Marie Hilly was a sophisticated lady. She had pride in her looks, her dress, end quote. Looking like the shadow of her former self, Marie had been on the run outside in February, where the daily temperature from February 24th to the 26th was in the 30s and 40s Fahrenheit, and that translates to approximately zero to six degrees Celsius. So it was pretty chilly. It was raining. She had no shelter. She had been exposed to the elements for at least three days as she hid in the woods. When the police arrived at Sucraft's home, Marie was conscious, but delirious. And she stayed this way during the ride to the hospital. But as the ambulance pulled up to the hospital, Marie went into cardiac arrest and the doctors were unable to revive her, pronouncing 53-year-old Audrey Marie Hilly dead at 5.06 p.m. from hypothermia and exposure. She was buried in a grave next to Frank Hilly, who she had murdered 12 years earlier. That, my friends, was Audrey Marie Hilly. She was deceitful. She was callous. She always seemed to walk that fine line, pushing it further and further as she tried to poison almost every person in her life. Her motivation seemed to be driven by obtaining the finer things in life. She wanted to be someone. She wanted to be associated as someone with wealth. She also rubbed elbows with a few prominent families in Aniston and attempted to work her way up the social ladder, but everything she did was at the expense of someone else. She didn't care how much money she spent. She viewed the people in her life, like her husband Frank and her two children, Michael and Carol, as nothing more than insurance payouts. In an episode of Snapped, Carol Hilly stated, quote, I couldn't please her no matter what I did. She didn't like what I wore. She didn't like how I thought. She didn't like who I hung out with, end quote. And that's horrible enough, but to know that your mother disliked you so much that she purposely poisoned you the night of your senior prom and continued to do so to the point where you lost the ability to walk and stand is just unbelievable. When the news broke that Marie Hilly had died from exposure, the common consensus was that she had only run because she was desperate. She saw this furlough with her husband as her last chance to escape and there was really very little planning that went into it. This is a woman who had previously evaded police for years. She had convinced her husband that she had died and that she came back as her twin sister. So for her to escape and hide out in the woods during the bitter cold and die from exposure seems a bit anticlimactic for a woman who was so calculating and so prepared during the most devious moments of her life. What I don't understand is why they let her leave the prison. I don't care that she was a model prisoner. She was a murderer. She didn't regret what she had done. She was dangerous. She's a flight risk because she had already escaped once before and it took them three years to find her. So how does it make any sense to allow her to leave regardless of how she behaved behind bars? That really just blows my mind and I sincerely hope that the Alabama prison system took another look at their day pass furlough program because I feel like there should be some restrictions there based on what criminals, what people who are in prison are allowed to have 
passes and furloughs. Okay, friends, thank you so, so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to everyone who has offered words of support and encouragement. I hope that you'll continue to listen each week. As always, you can reach out to Mask of Sanity on any of the social medias, or you can drop me an email if you have questions, feedback, suggestions, anything like that. Please always feel welcome to drop me a line. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please follow Mask of Sanity across all the social medias. The Instagram is Mask of Sanity, the podcast. Twitter is Mask Sanity Pod. And please follow the Oracle Network as well. It's at Oracle Network, O-R-A-C-L-3-N-E-T-W-O-R-K. If you're looking for ways to support the show, a five-star rating and review is always appreciated. I also have a Patreon, a merch store, and a coffee account. So there are plenty of ways to support the show if you're so inclined. This journey has been so amazing. And I can't tell you how lucky I feel and how proud that makes me. I would be remiss if I didn't say that I do this show out of a sense of desire to learn, but also a desire to present the best work possible. And it makes me so proud that people are enjoying the show because that must mean I'm doing something right. So thank you so much for continuing to support me. Please stick around after the show for the promo trailer for Weird Distractions. We all need a good distraction these days, and I can't recommend this show enough. Alex and Christy chat about true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal events, all that good stuff that we weirdos want to hear about. So make sure you subscribe to their show and binge. I promise you won't regret it. Again, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope you'll join me next week when I cover the case of John Cannon. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Mask of Sanity is partnered with the Oracle Network. Do you often find that you need a distraction from everyday life? Do you like true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, and other weird, dark tales? Well, tune in and turn up Weird Distractions Podcast, where we, your hosts, Christy and Alex, bring you a weird distraction to help you get through the work week. Every Sunday morning, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Good Pods, and more. So grab a snack, get comfy, and make sure to lock those doors. Need a distraction? We got you.